if you were to come to my office here at the church, uh, you would see on one of my bookshelves, I have a football that's uh, packaged up in this glass box. It was a gift that was given to me on the last team that I was a part of um, uh, working at a university down the street. And every member of the team signed it because they know I love football. And they bought me this, you know, really nice college football official size and whatever. And everybody signed it and wrote a note on it. It's there. And it, it was a gift that was given to me. And I've actually never taken it out of the glass to throw it around. I, I've never used it. Um, I love to throw the football. Uh, my kids and I, we will, we will do that if I'm at a buddy's house. You know, if I can get in a game of flag football to this day, I still will try to do that. But I've actually never used this gift, even though it was one of the, you know, it meant a lot to me. I've never, I've never used it. I've never pulled it out to actually use it because of all the signatures and all the reasons you would think that you wouldn't want to use that. Um, so although the intention of the football uh, was to be given to me uh, as a gift or the intention of the football design is to be used in a game, I've never used it that way. And that's my setup this morning as we are going to look at Romans 12 uh, because I think it's possible that this church in Rome and that maybe some of us uh, today uh, think about the gifts that we have in our life, uh, maybe more like that gift that was given to me that sits on a shelf um, and is not part of something greater than itself, but it sits there and it's looked at, it's admired, it's acknowledged, it's remembered, but it's not used. It is not in the game. Uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this uh, chapter, Romans chapter 12, uh, which kind of uh, we alluded to right before we started uh, the eight weeks on renewal. Um, and Romans chapter 12 is, is this turning point in the letter to the Romans uh, that the Apostle Paul is going to begin after, after what uh, one scholar calls, uh, you know, this mind-blowing set of theological principles, this mind-blowing teaching about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus and explaining what all that means. Then he says, in light of all these things, in, the, in light of this mercy, hey, let's get on to living. And then he's going to begin to talk about some really practical ways in which we can live. And today, one aspect of that, one way that, that Paul wants to tell the church that you're supposed to grow is that you're going to use these gifts that I have given you. So that's where we're headed uh, today. I want to read verses 3 through verses 8 uh, for us um, as we get started here. Verses 3 through verse 8, and that'll be on the screen. Uh, you can read that with me right here. For by the grace that was given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has given, has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. All right? A couple more verses here. We have different gifts. According to the grace given to each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith, with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, if you're at home, maybe you're looking at another translation, it may say, if it's exhorting or exhortation, uh, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. In Romans chapter 12, um, I'm going to highlight three things that I think are instructions that Paul is giving to the church. Sometimes when you're reading a, an epistle like this, a letter that he, he's just writing a letter to the church, um, it's a little bit different than reading some of the Gospels or reading some of the Old Testament stories or some of the Psalms that's more poetic or poetry or, or some of the wisdom literature. It's just, it's a little bit more straightforward and you can just see, okay, he's telling them, he's instructing them as to how it is they're supposed to discover life with God. How is it that they are supposed to find themselves in what he described in Romans 12, 1 
1 and 2, right, the two verses before this, this good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So how is it that you, uh, how is it that I can find ourselves in the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? And, and here's one of the ways. One of the ways he's going to do that is instruct them to use the gifts they have in the body um, that are there. So uh, before he does that, before we get into the three instructions, just quickly, you may have noticed that it says, by the grace that was given to me. So one of the things Paul's doing here is he's, he's acknowledging the source of this instruction, and that is that he is this apostle. He is one who has been appointed by God, given a specific gift uh, to serve and to lead the church in a different way. Uh, if you don't know anything about the apostle Paul's story, uh, Paul has this remarkable LinkedIn profile, right? He has, I mean, he's got a ton of people that have said, wow, you've planted a church here. Uh, you've done this. You've been shipwrecked. You've, you, have, uh, you, have, you have lived a life almost like no one else in the world has lived for the sake of Jesus. But he began that story as a, as a really, really well-trained, sort of went to the best schools around, best training, best mentor in the Jewish faith. In the midst of that, he was actually persecuting the church, trying to kill people and stop the church from going forward. Anyone who believed in Jesus, he was trying to shut that down and God interrupted his life in a, in a really, really dramatic way. Um, and so Paul has this miracle story, this grace that was given to him where he was literally and, and figuratively knocked off of his horse, knocked off of his life, uh, and then he had a restart. And he says, so by the grace that was given to me, let me instruct you in these uh, three things. So the source of this instruction comes from the Apostle Paul. He makes it clear that he is this one who can give them the instruction. And then he's going to say three different things. The first one he's going to say is don't think yourself more highly than you should, verse 3. And then he's going to tell them that they're not individuals only, but they're a part of a body. They're a member of something bigger than themselves. And then third, he's going to say, as a member, you've been given a gift by God and you got to use it. So those will be the three instructions that we look at this morning. So the first one is... Uh, what does it mean to not think of yourself more highly than you should? To think of yourself with what uh, explains here as sober judgment. Um, what, what does that actually look like? Now, this phrase, this kind of don't think of yourself, think of yourself, think of yourself, we use those words think over and over and over. And in the, in the original language, it's actually even more of a play on words. It's even more of a, the same exact word threads itself through all three of these so that if you would be saying it in the original language, it would, it would stick out to you as, okay, this set of phrases is clearly put together by Paul to say something really specific, to really make a, a point about this, to think soberly, to think sensibly about who you are as a person, uh, this judgment. Now, um, there's, a, uh, there's a great quote when it comes to how do you think about yourself when it comes to pride. Let me, let me read this for you. Um, as up until the 20th century, uh, traditional cultures, and that's still true of most cultures in the world today, always believed uh, that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all the evil in the world. What is the, re what is the reason for most of the crime and the violence in the world? Why are people abused? Why are people cruel? Why do people do the bad things that they do? Traditionally, the answer to this was this word, this great Greek word, this hubris, right? Filled with pride. Um, and this Greek word uh, means pride or too high a view of oneself. So typically... Uh, and historically, in most cultures, and again, as this author argues, even today in most cultures, the idea is that uh, the thing that would challenge you and cause pain in not just your own life, but in your family, not just your family, but in your environment, but not just in your environment, larger society, was too high view of yourself. But in today's culture, oftentimes people think the exact opposite of that. They think that if you think too lowly of yourself, that's going to be the cause of problems. So the problem that we have spent a lot of time um, trying to solve is getting people's self-esteem up, not getting people's self-esteem down. 
which is a, a really unique challenge to think about in light of what does it mean to sensibly or soberly with sound judgment think about who that you are. Um, I think when it comes to thinking about pride, uh, to me, there's, there's multiple ways to think about pride. The first one um, I would say is just the, the straight up obnoxious um, movie character type of pride that someone might have, right? So this is, this is someone that's re- the pride in their life is really easy to spot. Uh, there is a, um, uh, there's a comedian that became, or I was introduced to him. Uh, Brian Regan is his name. Uh, and he has this great little sketch uh, when he's talking about the me monster. And in other words, he's at a dinner and somebody is telling a story and the guy constantly is bringing the conversation back to him. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to try to do that little, that, that uh, sketch, but it is, it's funny. It's worth Googling. And, and this me monster person, you know, no matter what you do, he's got something better that's there and always comes back to how he is greater and, and better than anyone else. So he tells, at the end, he talks about telling a story, just thinking he's contributing to the dinner. And he's like, you know, I had two wisdom teeth pulled out and his mind's a big deal. Something's there. And he's this guy's like, oh, you had two? Oh, I had four wisdom teeth taken out. No, actually I had nine wisdom teeth and, and no painkillers. And, you know, I ate corn on the cob that night. Anyway, it's, it's really funny. But the point is that that type of pride in some ways is pretty easy to spot. And in some ways it's, it's at least in a lot of church settings um, in a lot of spiritual settings, it's not really rewarded. Um, it may be rewarded on a athletic field or in a sales room or in a uh, sorority or whatever that might be, that there, there may be a little bit more of people are drawn to someone that has that kind of confidence and that they can hold the story, hold the conversation and always uh, tell everyone else, uh, what it is they're doing and how they built the world. But in a, in a lot of church settings, it actually doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem uh, to be applauded uh, very often. And so that's a sort of pride, which may have been happening in Rome, may have been happening in this church, um, uh, would be there. And it's essentially with someone who looks at God and says, I have done everything. I am the one who is responsible for all the goodness in my life. I am the one who has built this great uh, resume that I have. And I have, I have, I have, I have. It all comes back to me as the individual that's there. And Paul's saying, you know what? You don't really have a good understanding of who you are if you think you built your life, right? Like, you, you just, you're just not really paying attention to all the facts. Like, the things that you inherited, like being able to see being able to talk, being able to hear, being able to listen, having someone feed you for your whole life uh, as a child. Like there are lots of other things and people that have contributed to the basic abilities that you have. Yes, you may have taken them and expanded on them, but uh, the point is that you are not a self-created human being. We spent a lot of time talking about this in renewal, um, that the first aspect of understanding who we are, our identity in God, is that we are, cre- we are creatures. Someone created by another, not autonomous selves. So that is one way this could sort of obnoxious or very obvious sense of pride. The other sense of pride, I think, is a little bit more subtle, and I would call it hidden pride. And and people who struggle with hidden pride, um, oftentimes in the church, they're the first ones to recognize the obvious or obnoxious pride in someone else, right? You see it more quickly than someone else. And it, it... injures you or it hurts you or it causes you to be upset uh, when someone else interrupts or someone else tells a story that's one-upping somebody else a little bit more uh, than anyone else. And one of the reasons that this hidden pride inside of you um, happens is that you don't think that you're prideful. 
is you don't think you're like that other person because if, if there's pride going on, you would never do that to someone else, right? You would always listen to the other story. You would never one-up them. But what can happen in someone who experiences what, what we're going to call this, this hidden sense of pride is that inside of your own life is that you can't receive a compliment from someone else. This person gives themselves compliments. You would never do that. But when someone tries to compliment you or thank you for what you've done or tell you you've done a good job, you immediately resist it. Why? Because maybe deep down desperately you really wish that you were this good at something or you really wish the contribution we made is as good as someone else said about you, but you resist it. You stiff arm it. You actually, in the same way that person says to God, I've built my life, you say, God, you've not given me anything good enough to be applauded. And oftentimes the inner critic that's running inside of your, your mind over and over and over becomes a voice that's not true about who God is and what he's not only said about you, but what he's gifted you and what he's allowed you to do inside of the world. These gifts we're going to get to later on. And th this is a part of receiving the gifts God's given us and using them as to how not to use them in a prideful way or in a way that isn't using sound uh, judgment. Uh, that's there. So let me return uh, over here. Th this exact same concept comes up when Paul writes a letter to another church, a church in Corinth, where he's warning them about the exact same abuse in their own life. And he says this, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. Apollos is one of the other apostles, um, key teachers, preachers in the area uh, for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be uh, puffed up in being a follower of the one, the one of us over and against the other. Now, this is because there's big divisions in the church and they're trying to pick which leader they're going to follow that's there. But then listen to this verse seven here. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not. In other words, Paul is trying to orient their struggle in pride and their actually pride is causing division inside of the church that's there. It's, it's breaking up sections of the church because we have it right and you don't have it right and we're going to follow this person's teaching and not this person's teaching. And Paul's saying to, to these people, what is it that you have that you didn't receive? What is it that is making you think you're so much better than this other group that's there? And so he tries to come in the midst of that pride and he tries to heal the potential division or the brokenness uh, that comes apart. And I think in Romans, that's the exact same argument that he's making uh, that's a part of that. So th the first instruction he's giving them is really to have a correct view of themselves. And oftentimes you see this type of teaching connected to the giftedness that we have and the giftedness that uh, we use inside of the church. So the second instruction is this, and this is a, a little bit more uh, simple and straightforward. And that is simply that as someone called to help build and grow the church as a follower of Jesus, you're not doing this on your own, but you're a part, you're a member of the body. Uh, verse four and five just says, as the body has many members, the members do not help have the same function. And so, but they do form one uh, body. Now body is a metaphor that's, that is uh, given to the church, but it's also used um, in sort of broader conversations there. So you think even today, something like the body politic, this would be a phrase that you would hear in um, legal circles or certainly in political circles, it's there. And this goes back, this has a long, long history. Some people actually try to go all the way to the sixth century BC, back to like Aesop's fables and try to say that inside of this, this is where you originally get this word and it would have been used in Roman circles that's there. So there's a, there's a chance or maybe a good chance that Paul is borrowing a term from the 
from the local newspaper, right? He's just, he's picking something out and he's saying, but it's not the sovereign of Rome, right? It's, it's not the ruler of the current age in which is going to dictate the agenda of the body or the community or the, this living organism that's there. It, that's not actually what's happening here is that there is this, not a sovereign of this world, but there's a sovereign of the universe. There is this uh, Christ, this Jesus, this Messiah who has come, and he is the head of the body, and the body gets on board with the agenda that Jesus has. And the body is not made up of just this bucket of ears over here and this bucket of left hands over here and this bucket of, you know, pick the part of the body. It's actually these various parts all brought together to provide a specific um, function it's there. So Paul uses this phrase um, of a body. And, and one of the things that, that's challenging about thinking of yourself as a member of a team or a member of a living organism body is that for those who are doing really, really well, this actually may feel like it slows you down. Um, it, it may feel like that you could perform better on your own if you didn't have to think about being a member of the body. And those who may be struggling or maybe hurting or in a place where they need attention and healing, this actually could be really, really good news because you're like, oh, I'm not alone. There are people who can come around me and walk with me through this challenge that's there. And so one of the realities of being a part of a body is that maybe not just we have different functions, but maybe we're in different places in our life and we need something different. Um, this is, I am not a cyclist. I am not a... Um, but every once in a while, when the Tour de France is on or one of these big races, world races is on, um, I will try to pay attention to it or at least watch some of the highlights that's there. One of the things that I didn't understand at first is why in the world there would be a team, because there's only one person that wins the race, right, in my mind. So I'm like, why is there a team of cyclists that go out? Why is there like an American team and a German team and a whatever that's there? And what I have begin to understand a little bit more about this is that the individual rider and the team has a strategy. And yes, there is someone who is the lead person at the end, is the person that could potentially win the race. Uh, but going out on your own on a journey this far, you are bound not to win when you're facing a team is because a team may not be able to go faster, every one of them individually, but they can certainly go faster when you're talking about a race that long, when you're talking about something that's that far. And the race of life, um, the, right, the race that we're all on in our life, yeah, maybe you can go faster just individually by yourself. But what Paul is trying to say is that's actually not the goal. Uh, the goal is this faithful, long-term growing, and it's not just about your own speed and what you can record, but it's about measuring how others are growing as well, and how others are moving forward with their life with God as well. And so it's this challenge to go, hey, you're not just kind of getting your own report card here. You're actually getting a report card for the whole class. Um, and so you need to be thinking about how other people are doing uh, along the way as well. And this is actually one of the ways that chips away at this first instruction of pride, is that oftentimes pride, we think of ourselves, by our, we think of ourselves individually. Uh, but when you think of yourself as part of the body, um, one of the things that can happen there is it, is it changes your framework and maybe you're not quite as strong or untouchable as you uh, think you are. And the other part of this, and I don't have time to spend a lot of time in here, but this understanding of the body that has many, many members and different functions, but is still one body. This is one of the ways that the church gives a, uh, tells a story about who God is to the world, that in the midst of all this diversity, there can be unity that there's something that can hold together this group of people who have come together to worship Jesus, who've come together in their new life in Christ. This unity can happen at the same time there is diversity. And so inside of the church, you see both of those things celebrated. It's not just unity. It's not just diversity. It's unity and diversity functioning together inside 
the church. And this is, this is a big deal that Paul wants to get across to them. The third instruction that he brings to them that he uh, provides here is, I think you see it uh, in just a few verses later, and this is that this list of gifts. And this is to say, you need to use the gifts that you have to build up uh, the body. Now this phrase, um, gifts, is this word uh, charismata, um, uh, which is a word uh, that you see um, when you hear it immediately, you may have an association of, it sounds like charismatic, right? It is this uh, charisma, charismatic, that's kind of the group of words that's there. And inside of the American church anyway, when you say that you're a charismatic either believer or you're part of a charismatic church, there's a certain association that you have, right? So in most, most people tell the story, if they're going to tell the story of the charismatic movement in the United States and really across the world the last hundred years, it's going to go back to 1906 um, in a place called uh, the Azusa Street Revival. And so inside of the Azusa Street Revival, which, is, which was out west in LA, uh, you had a young um, pastor uh, who was um, really, he was trained uh, he was trained in Topeka, Kansas uh, by a pastor there who believed that uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this sort of third gift um, of grace was given to the church and that you should try to find out exactly what it is that that looks like um, and how it is that that works itself out in the church. And so um, this young man, William Seymour's his name, but uh, this, this young man begins a revival that lasts for about 10 years um, out in LA. And it, it's had a significant influence in the United States and really across the world. Uh, the charismatic movement, or you may think of holiness churches or Pentecostal churches, um, and really Baptists were sending people out there. Uh, the Methodist uh, church was sending people out there to understand even the Presbyterians, which aren't thought of in many cases um, as, as being very charismatic, but they were sending people and their church planners and missionaries there to understand what it is that God might be doing and, and what's happening in that. And so when you, when you see this phrase, these gifts that are given, these gifts of grace, uh, this phrase charisma or charismatic um, is really a part of it. And in a sense, there is no church that is not a charismatic church. In other words, there's not a church that hasn't received gifts from God in order to be used inside of the community. Now, the debate becomes, and we won't get in it today, but the debate becomes around exactly how those gifts are proportioned out and what those uh, gifts are. So it hinges oftentimes, not just in this passage of scripture in Romans 12, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So let me show you 1 Corinthians chapter 12 um, right here. Uh, it says, Paul writes this, he's instructing them about these, and he says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord uh, there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God that's at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To the one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, another distinguished between the spirits, another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of the tongues. And then finally, all these are the work of the one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you can see uh, that it's a very similar list to some of the things in Romans 12. When Paul's writing the gifts in either one of these, this is not, these are the comprehensive gifts and you need to figure out which one of these are yours. Um, when you hear somebody talk about gifts inside of the church, 
uh, it may immediately go to some of these things that are a little bit more controversial that are there. And I really don't want to focus on those today. I want to say it's worth studying that. There is no doubt. And it is worth trying to figure out what you think those passages of Scripture mean and what gifts God has given you and how do you use those inside of the church. Those are definitely there. And we're going we're gonna to turn to try to understand those. But when you just step back a little bit and think about what it is that God is doing here with a um, a sense of writing, a, or what is Paul doing here by writing a list of these gifts that's there? He's trying to give examples inside of the church of how people should begin to understand themselves. Now, in American culture today, uh, we don't use this same language, but it's very common in the business community to do an exercise just like this, right? Um, many of you in, who are watching today um, are probably have somewhere in your past history done something like a strengths profile, right? So you know, for example, I wrote this, this down from a friend of mine uh, that, that uh, they are a achiever, positivity, belief, uh, they have harmony, and they have woo, which is like the you know, your best word to say. But in Tom Rath's book there on how do you find your strengths and how do you incorporate that into a culture and how do you not just work on your weaknesses, don't spend your time, he's going to argue, working on your weaknesses, but find your strengths, put those in the bottom of your email or put them on your, uh, you know, computer screen to remind yourself of how you function best in your natural person who you are and focus all your time on getting better at those strengths. Because if you do really, really well at your strengths, you will be happier in your work, you'll be more engaged, uh, your teammates will appreciate you more, see your value more, and ultimately he's going to say that a culture or a company or an organization is going to thrive when they can, f they can allow people to use these strengths, these natural strengths and talents they have, and they should invest in those and they should learn more from those. And so in and, and that sense, this is, this is a, um, a common understanding. And that is that there's something unique about in different individuals. And if you live into your uniqueness or your talents or your strengths, uh, that that is going to go well with you. And the Apostle Paul was not, uh, did not read this New York Times bestselling book, Tom Rath, right? He, he, did, not, he did not take footnotes on this. What he is, what he is doing, though, is a, is a concept that is certainly much older and more ancient um, and understanding that in God's unique design for all of us, that he has made us as individuals. And he has made us as individuals with something to do. And then that something to do, this task that we've been given, this, this gift set that we have is different than others around us. And that we should focus our time and our attention not on looking at which of these gifts we wish we had, not who is it that we wish we could be like, or we could compare ourselves to someone else and constantly wish that we had what they had. No, that's not it. It's actually to, to recognize who it is that God has made you to be. So the list that he puts here, there's, there's seven things that he lists. Um, it doesn't mean it's comprehensive, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12. There's, there's a bunch more there. You could find about 20, 21 different gifts, it looks like, um, that are listed somewhere in the New Testament, in the instruction. Uh, but it's serving or teaching or prophecy, encouragement, giving, leading, showing mercy. Um, we don't have time to go through exactly what each one of these mean this morning, but I want to give you two examples. Okay. The first one is someone uh, who recently um, I heard a story um, of someone who has been practicing this gift of generosity, this gift of giving uh, that is listed that's there. 
And so uh, there's many people in Christchurch who have gone on something called a journey of generosity. It's a, it's a weekend that's focused on, some of you may have a weekend studying prayer or a weekend studying uh, spiritual gifts or whatever it would be. This is a weekend specifically studying generosity and what is the Bible says and hearing some stories about that. And so recently, Julie and I had a chance to participate in one of those uh, weekends um, with several other uh, couples here at the church. And one of the stories that was told in the middle of that is a story about a man um, who inherited his family company. It was a small company. They had eight, 10 employees, something like that. Um, and as he and his wife started, they, um, they made a decision. They were going to live on X income and anything that they made above and beyond that, they were going to get 50% invested back into the company. And then the other 50%, they were going to support Christian causes. They had a, at that time, they had a heart for missionaries, international missionaries. They wanted to support those. And so they did that. And so he said, after a couple years, they were actually able to give away $50,000. And then the very next year, very next year, they ended up, their their business was 3x what it was the year before. So now they're in a place where they're going to give away $150,000 um, as a part of this. And so, he's, you know, he's telling this story. This is 15, 20 years ago. Um, and they're just amazed at what it is. And so they had decided, keep our house, keep our car, keep our standard of living here. Again, anything that goes above and beyond. So they begin to attract people to the company that heard that no matter how well this company grows, this owner, right, the person that's driving this, he's actually not going to benefit from my hard work. He's individually not going to sort of get bigger and better as a, because of this, but there's people in other places who would be the beneficiaries of this happening. So he begins to tell the story and the company just explodes. And next thing you know, um, they're in a place where at the end of the year, they're, they're giving away a million dollars. And again, he's attracted this new team and, and, and many more employees. It's a national company at this point. Um, and in one of their sales team meetings, uh, the the, they would talk about how they're going to distribute the money and who they're going to help and what causes to be a part of. And there's a sales guy that says, I think we need to have a goal, right? That's, you always want the sales guy that loves to put a goal out there. He says, we need to have a goal as a company to give away a million dollars a month. Of course, the owner of the company just starts laughing. He's like, yeah, there's no way. But sure enough, within a couple years, this couple who owns uh, the company is giving away over a million dollars a month. The company's worth $400 million um, and their profits are, are, are going wild. And they kept this promise to give that away. Now, when I heard that story, my initial thought was, oh my goodness, um, I could never do that. Um, if I said that originally and the company did that, would I change my mind? How does this person have so much courage? And I started thinking about how amazing this couple is that's there. And I also got a little bit jealous of like, um, man, I'd love to have a story that's like that. But what I missed is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's don't think of yourself too highly and really don't think of others too highly as well. This is a couple who was given the gift of generosity. It's a gift that God gave them. And all they're doing is exercising it. And as they exercise it, yes, it, is a, it becomes an extraordinary reality that's there. But the, the hero of that story is not the couple. The hero of the story is the giver of the gift. It is God who gave this gift to a couple. And you get to see it. And when you see something like that happen, you go, oh my goodness. When good things happen in this world... Christians are able to reflect the goodness of God, the generosity of the heart of God that spills out and serves and loves others. The body, if you will, is built up and instructed in that way. Uh, another story, an example of a teaching gift. Uh, there's a man at Christ Church um, who has been teaching a Sunday school class to kids for almost 40 years. So if you've got a fourth grader, you've had a fourth grader come through here, and if they, I think typically the 11 o'clock service, but if they have gone through that, then he has instructed them. He has used this gift that he was invited to use almost 40 years ago, um, and is like, I don't know if I should do that. But 
week after week, year after year, he is exercising this gift that he has been given for the good of others. And it's not only for the good of others, but in exercising it, he himself is challenged to regularly have to study the scriptures. He himself is challenged to regularly have to learn and grow himself and then to continue to sort of stay active in his faith. It actually takes faith to exercise the gifts God has given us. And so by the faith that God has given to each one, we should exercise the gifts that we have. So this morning, that's part of the challenge that Paul's giving us. The instruction to you, the challenge to you, is actually to begin to understand how God has wired you, ask those around you, uh, experiment, try some things, see what happens, see what you're good at in your normal everyday life. These are oftentimes the natural gifts God has given us, and he begins to use them in specific ways, in spiritual ways. And sometimes God gives new gifts uh, to those that are, are uh, come to faith and the, those who follow Jesus and the spirit of God begins to blossom new gifts inside of their lives. Both of those things are true. And so find out what it is uh, that God has gifted you with and how you might uh, use that today. Now, we are gonna close the service um, with a chance to have communion meal together. And to me, this communion meal is a great way to wrap up the service today for this reason. And that is in the middle of our passage today. In verse five, there's this little phrase that says, all these things are happening in Christ. How is it that you can think soberly about yourself? How, how, can, you, how can you not have uh, pride? How can you not be prideful? How is it that you can actually live as an individual inside of a body and a unity and diversity that's there? And how is it that you uh, can recognize and use the gifts that are there. And the answer that ties all three of these things together, sort of the, the end result of this is actually living in Christ. Because when you realize you're in Christ, you realize, as Pastor Mike says all the time, you're more sinful than you could ever imagine. But God loves you in the midst of that. And that is a, uh, a humbling reality to live inside. And then when you realize that that identity is yours and you share that with others that are also sinners saved, not by their own good works, but by the grace of God that's there, you recognize that now you're a part of this family. And what brings you together is your common identity in Christ. And then when you try to figure out, what am I supposed to be doing? Oh, I am on mission that the head of the body, uh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is, has set out this mission and I join with him. I am in Christ on mission, using my gifts, not for my own sake, but for the sake of others to build up uh, the body of Christ. And this morning when we celebrate communion, we're going to be reminded of our identity in Christ, our common um, identity as a family, and be spurred on and reminded to live by faith and to use the gifts that God has given us. So please join me as we pray, and we'll have a time where Paul will lead us in communion. Heavenly Father, uh, these instructions can be challenging. Certainly they were to me this past week uh, to think about this, is, is what is my, my view of myself? Um, how is it that I may uh, not be operating as part of the body? How may I not be actually participating, um, but sitting on the sidelines in different ways? Um, and God, where do I need to be humble enough to recognize gifts that you have given um, and to call them out in others, to see them and encourage them, to see them blossom in others and invite others into opportunities uh, to use those gifts in the church, in their families, in the communities in which they work, in which they serve, that are there. So God, by your spirit, we pray that uh, you would help us uh, to hear these instructions from Paul, um, be humbled this morning, by what you've done for us in Christ and to rejoice and return to that identity we have in him, even as we have this time of communion. In Christ's name, amen.